This is Media Files, a podcast about the major themes and issues in the media. I'm Andrea Carson from La Trobe University. And I'm Andrew Dodd from the University of Melbourne. Today, we are looking at the future newsroom. We often hear about the doom and gloom of established media companies as they shed staff and revenues. But is there hope for journalism and a new style of digital newsroom? We ask of the man with an ambitious mission to launch 100 media startups in three years, what does the future newsroom look like? Our guest is co-founder and CEO of Splice Media, Alan Soon. Based in Singapore, Alan is a former journalist and producer at Yahoo, CNBC, Bloomberg and Kyoto News. And he's promising a million dollars to give to startups to transform media in the Asia-Pacific. Welcome, Alan. Why are you in Melbourne and what are you doing here? So I am here to do an audit of the media startup landscape in Australia. And basically to answer two questions. Uh, First, why aren't there more media startups? That's one. And second is what do we need to to do to, to make sure that we're creating a conducive environment for media startups to thrive in the next three years. Now, you're from Splice Media. What's your goals with Splice Media? It's not just Australia that you're looking at. It's yeah. beyond that. So the the overarching kind of boilerplate answer to this is that we, we're trying to drive the transformation of the media industry in Asia. We think that this region really badly needs, um, you know, a kick up its thing uh, to get to get the industry moving again. I think, um, you know, a lot of the examples that we see when it comes to to media and where it's going are very American uh, in its narrative. And I think that Asia has a has a very different story. Do you consider Australia part of Asia? I know. I knew that was coming. Uh, you guys are the P in Asia Pacific, I think. So <laughs> I'm interested in why you thought at the outset of your trip that there weren't many startups happening in Australia. What led you to think that? Oh, just um, just by asking around. Every time I said to people, hey, you know, what's going on in Australia? What's going on in the media space? And everyone was like, it's really dead. It's really boring. It's really Fairfax and New, uh, News Corp. And, you know, you, you come to a point where you think, surely there must be a bit more to this, right? This is, if I'm not mistaken, number two or number three in uh, digital ad spend for, for this part of the world, better known as Asia Pacific. Um, and I thought there must be something else that's going on here. Um, and strangely enough... You know, not so much. But we found the really some some really interesting things that that we'll put together in a report uh, that will be released by the end of the year. So, what sort of things are you finding? Is it how niche is startups, and are we just talking about digital media, or are you also looking at startups that might be in other forms? Yeah, it's mostly digital media, just because you know, given the the state of the advertising market for one, um, and and and. And also the the opportunities that the digital affords a lot of um, you know startups. So we've been looking at everything from broad mass um, digital publishers to some very niche ones, uh, and I think that's really interesting because you look at the the vertical media space, which is to say very niche, very engaged audiences. I think that's really interesting. I think there are some really good ideas that are happening out there. We just don't hear about them or talk talk about them in the same context because they don't fit the bill of what looks and sounds like a like a media organization, right? And I think this is one of the the things that we want to see change. We want to we want to get a broader definition of what it means to be in the media space today. Where are you coming at this from? Is it from an advertising perspective, or do you want to see more diversity? What drives you in this quest? What, what what's your motivation? So you know. 
we've done we've done a lot of consulting work working with with big newsrooms and helping them with their digital transformation you know stuff from their strategy their operations and, and workflows and, and what have you and the one thing that has always come up was the fact that this would take too long to fix by the time you get the stuff done and ready you know um, we would we'll be on to a new trend so my motivation here is really to find media startups that are leading the way forward. And I think it's easier to go out and try to help launch 100 media startups than it is to turn around three old school, you know, traditional media. Now, the headline figure here is that you are advertising that you've got a million dollars to try and get 100 startups up and running in three years. That's right. How are you going to make that happen? And where does the million dollars come from? So the million dollar is, well, the million dollar fund is something that we're putting together with civil media. Um, civil media, I'm not sure if your listeners are, are aware of, um, have been building a network of independent media uh, newsrooms, uh, basically bringing them together on, on the blockchain technology as well. So that's civil in a nutshell. Um, their interests and ours are the same in that we want to see more media startups coming up in this space. We, we believe that the, the best way to transform this industry that we all care a lot about is, is to make sure that um, you are lowering the barrier to entry for, for new players and helping them find a niche and helping them uh, survive in this space. Now, often when we think of blockchain, we think of Bitcoin. How yeah. does blockchain relate to media? So this is one of the the tough questions. Um, you know, one one of the struggles that that we've seen in this space is that um, media and blockchain that that Venn diagram of um, blockchain solving a problem and you know media having a a, a, you know, a solution that that works that is that is a bit convoluted right now. I think that's where the challenge is. Um, blockchain is a great technology for for a number of things. Uh, for example, content rights management or ensuring the, ar- the the permanent archival of of articles. For example, those are, are two very simple uh, use cases. Um, obviously, there are some. Um, some solutions that currently exist that don't really require blockchain. And this this is where that challenge is, right? Blockchain as a decentralized uh, format is is great. And I think it's a it's an important way to, well, as a lens to to the industry. I'm just wondering about this figure of a hundred startups. Is the idea, you know, that that old analogy of sending out boats and not knowing that not all of them will reach the foreign shore. That's right. So a hundred boats being sent out by you guys with the expectation that how many will land? Have you got a sort of uh, what? In other words, what does success look like? For yeah. You? No, I think we're 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 fairly realistic about this stuff. I think you know if if we went on the basis of a ninety five percent failure rate, uh, I think that would be very normal. Uh, we've seen the same kind of number, you know, across uh, different uh, different industries. You know, um, it's very hard to start up, but it's very important that that we find ways to help people do that. So, what are the startups that are working in Asia, and have you seen any in Australia that are really impressing you? Well, I'll leave the Australia ones out for now because that's coming up in, in our report. But we've, you know, we've interviewed a number of really interesting ones here that, that, you know, I find fascinating, very captivating. 
Yeah, we'll we'll leave that one aside until until the report comes out. We can talk about that when when it does. As for the rest of this region, we've seen some really interesting stuff coming on the edges of of mainstream society. For example, so in in Indonesia, um, there's a there's a fantastic little startup called Magdalene. And what they do is they report on the LGBTQ uh, section of, of society. This was started by a journalist who used to work with The Straits Times. Uh, she was a correspondent in Jakarta. She was frustrated at the fact that a lot of these big issues that concern her community were just not getting you know, time of day. And so she started this as a way to tell those stories and to explain what's going on in those very specific communities. And, and these are things that technology has allowed us to do you know the barrier the barrier to entry for someone wanting to come in and start something in a very specific um, niche category is you know this is easier than it's ever been often these things start off as a passion project yeah. and people throw a lot of energy and enthusiasm into it but how do you sustain it how do you turn it into something that's going to last for two years or five years or ten years what are some of the business models that you see that can sustain these yeah. So community is a big part of this, right? Community and membership is is something that's being tested right now um, across the region, I think, and, and obviously in various parts of the world. Uh, the membership puzzle, for example, in the U.S. is doing some really amazing work on that front. Um, but, you know, the, the thing about communities, and, and you're right, it is, it is very often a passion project. Um, the challenge is really to find ways in which you can add value to the to the. Yeah, communities, and I and I always believe that if you can add value, you can find a way to monetize. You know, and it's just a matter of finding the right partnerships, finding the right people, uh, bringing the right investors in. Um, you know, I think the 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 challenge is is to to broaden our definition of what it means to play in this space, because I think the media narrative has always been confined by the, the stories that are going on about traditional media and the cost structures that they have. If you were to flip that around and look at the opportunities for a media startup these days, you know, a two-person team um, building a newsroom on Google Suite, for example, you know, your barrier to entry is so low that you can keep something going for for a while until you find the right solution, right? So membership is, is one way to monetize. Sponsorships is, is obviously another, um, you know, and, and, and the interesting thing about this space is that advertising isn't always the default solution, um, which I find to be very encouraging. Well, you ask, in fact, it's one of your sort of principal missions that you want to ask that question about new revenue streams. So yeah. apart from those obvious ones that you've gone through, mm. membership, advertising and so on, are there new revenue streams? Well, you know, what's interesting is that just today we were talking to someone about this um, and they provide creative services for people who want to look like them, you know, so they they work with brands. Um, so, for example, if you were a brand and you wanted that style of photography, that style of, of videography to be written about in that voice, um, you would work with them and, you know, you would get them to basically style you. Uh, so that's one of the the interesting models, that and, we've and they across. charge a premium because they're giving a very niche kind of service. That's right, it, exactly, exactly. So you know, that's taking that native advertising a, a step further, right? So native advertising, as we know, it has always been um, an article that looks and feels like uh, the website that it exists in. Uh, this takes it a step further by helping the brands look and sound just like you. You know, so there, there are various ways of doing this stuff. There was a media scholar, Philip Meyer, a few years ago, who said the boundaries between editorial and advertising were blurring. Yeah. 
And now we do see that with native advertising. Is that something we should be concerned about in terms of democratic health where audiences may not be able to differentiate between when a newspaper is selling something to them or an outlet selling yeah. something to them and when it's providing news? This goes back to, to the point I was trying to make earlier, that we need a, a new definition of news and media because I think the way we look at some of these things um, are just too binary. Um, I think, obviously, in the case of something as hard as, as politics, you know, um, making sure whether, you know, that you have clear lines with the demarcation, that's important. Uh, but then there are also a lot of softer areas where, where sponsored content and branded content and native advertising you know, is, is allowed to play. And I think, you know, if, if we take a, a hard brush and, uh, and turn this, you know, into a binary discussion, it becomes very hard. It becomes very hard because, um, you know, new startups can't test new, new ideas as a result of that. If you were doing lifestyle, for example, would it matter as much, you know, that you, um, you were sponsored by, you know, a lifestyle brand? Um, and, and I think that's where the challenge is. We need to find ways to to breathe new life into into our definition of the space. It sounds almost like you've capitulated at the outset if you're asking those questions about yeah. does it really matter in lifestyle if we have these editorial yeah. lines blurring? Sure. Well, there are also ways to to demarcate this stuff, right? And and you can flag this stuff early and high up in your articles. You can you can make it very clear that this article was paid for by a specific brand. Um, and you see a lot of that these days, right? And and in the lifestyle space, whenever you see that, you don't really you don't cringe because you have come to ex- accept that as, as what it is. Um, and it relies on the idea that audiences are much more savvy these days and they kind of get what's going on. But I, I wonder sometimes whether that's the case, whether our audiences are really switched on to hmm. these crucial questions about editorial lines and independence. So I think what's missing in this space is a, is a clear, consistent format in which publishers are declaring uh, that this is sponsored content. I think that's where the confusion is. Um, And I think, you know, a lot more can be done in that space for industry-wide standards. Does it also depend on the age of the readership that some readers are a lot more savvy than others? Right, exactly. And and a lot of this comes down to your audience, right? And again, if if you know your audience, you know what to put in front of them and what not to put in front of them. Uh, You know what would fly and what wouldn't fly, right? Uh, And again, it's, yeah, it comes down to who your audience is and whether... Um, whether you feel that this would breach that trust with them. You talked before about the importance of community, building community and membership. What about collaboration? Are you seeing many examples where media groups are collaborating with other media groups or other media outlets? And, and how does that work? Yeah, I, I like this this topic just because I think, you know, we just don't have enough of this. And um, we, we don't spend enough time talking about the infrastructure that needs to be built. So, for example, you know, in some of the work that we've done, um, you know, one one very typical ask would be, hey, I need a website. Um, I'm going to go build this website. And, of course, you know, it, the cost of putting one of these things together, you know, you, you could be spending up to 20, 30 grand just to put a, a WordPress site together. Um, it's always baffled me that no one has tried to to build one single theme uh, and then shipped it out to all these small little media sites. Actually, no, I'll take that back. I think Medium tried to do that, and that was the initial goal of Medium, to create common piping for, for everyone so that you, as a journalist, could just go and write. I, I know of one site that does that. The Student Newspapers Online Group in the U.S. provide oh, yeah. a, a WordPress site that 
you know, well over a thousand schools across the US can tap mm. into fairly cheaply. I think that's that's brilliant. I'm going to look that up. I think that's that's the kind of stuff we need more of across across the world because, you know, the cost of of starting up would be you know uh, having a website, having um, a way to communicate and collaborate better, um, a way to you know to process photos and and uh, the way to to get videos across. You know, there's a lot of, of piping that can be shared. Another one area that that I would like to see collaboration on is, is shared services around, say, finance, for example. Running a startup is hard. It takes a lot of work to put all that paperwork together. Um, you could have a centralized finance team uh, that does this for you. Europe does this with Piano Media, yeah. where they do paywalls. This was maybe five years ago, but right. the infrastructure for a paywall was all done by one company, right. and then they'd sell it off to newspapers. Yeah, and I, and I would actually like that to go a little bit further. You know, do all my invoicing for me, do do all my collection for me. Um, I think all that kind of stuff is so important, and yet we we're not thinking hard enough about it, right? Everybody goes out and basically replicates the same model and therefore the same costs. All right, let me throw the devil's advocate question at you, which is that there is now far too much to read and consume and that, you know, there's just been a blossoming of things all over the place. None of us can keep up. We can't keep up with the apps that we're meant to be having and right. let alone the stories we're all meant to be reading. Yeah. There's no downtime. Mm. The role of journalism in the old form was that that would be collated and um, synthesized so that people wouldn't have to read as much. Yes, it's gone that's out right. of control now. Exactly, and and I think this is where where the biggest problem is. We all have twenty four hours in our day. Um, we all have a limited amount of attention that we can spend looking at our screens, and yet you know the moment you you unlock your screen, you get you know a whole bunch of notifications, ten, twenty, thirty, sometimes um, everything vying for for your attention, and that's not you know that's just impossible. So you're making that worse, aren't you, by encouraging all these startups to thrive and succeed? Actually, I'm I'm encouraging uh, encouraging them to build something that's relevant uh, to the communities that they want to serve. Right, I think. A lot of the content that's out there exists because someone said, hey, wouldn't it be fun to do X? And so they would do that. The problem is, you know, if you're not if you're not seeking out an issue or a problem to solve out there for your community, for your audience, then you're not really being relevant to them and therefore not valuable. And if you're not valuable, then you're you're not monetizable. Right. And I think that's where that, that struggle is. Um, it's very hard to find um um, publishers that exist for a specific purpose. You know, the, part of the problem with the with the advertising model is that we've we've grown so accustomed to throwing just numbers, you know, in terms of of traffic uh, onto a website and trying to drive traffic to a website, and and missing the whole point of of knowing who your audience is and solving a problem for them. You've talked about trust, and you've also talked about relevance. Yeah, the opposite to that. Perhaps is fake news. Mm. Have you seen any startups that are addressing that? And how does fake news fit into this media ecosystem that you're also trying to have an influence on? Yeah, that's that's a hard one, just because it's such a big topic, right? I think what's what's interesting about the fake news space is that I think for for one, you got to acknowledge the fact that a lot of these crazy ideas that exist out there, fake and, you know, misinformed and, and, uh, and organized, they exist because they have found a way to reach an audience that the rest of us good guys don't know how to or refuse to try, 
right? And I think this is one of the problems. Um, if you look at at this, you know, so-called Russian meddling in, in the U.S. elections, they were doing everything that any typical um, digital marketer could do. There was no there was no black box here. There was no black magic, no dark secret to how this stuff gets done. If you wanted to reach an audience on a platform like Facebook or Instagram or, you know, any one of the not so many other <laughs> social platforms, it's it's not that hard anymore because the technology exists so that you can micro-target. And, you know, if if the bad guys have figured this out, why is it so hard for media companies to say, hey, you know, we want to target our ads or target our content the same way people target ads? But isn't it that fake news is often shocking and by definition, uh, extraordinary. Yeah. More, so extraordinary that it's fake. And that's right. that gives it a head start. <laughs> yeah. And, and you know, that's that's a problem for the platform to solve. The, the platforms and the algorithms are, are optimized to basically give you more of what people engage in, right? And that's, and that's it. And, you know, from that basis, from that vantage point, you can see how society gets so polarized because the more people engage with, you know, with a crazy idea – the more popular it becomes. And the more popular it becomes, the more the media wants to report about it, right? And you see, you know, this crazy vicious circle that goes that goes around. And I think we need to spend more time telling media companies to know how to back off when they see something crazy. Just because this is suddenly trending on Facebook doesn't mean you should be covering it. And they're giving it oxygen, in other words. Exactly. So we've got to make... They're giving credibility, yeah, even. We've got to make fact-checking more sexy. You know, there's got to be a way up front of making... The, the the routine stuff more appealing and interesting so that it isn't, you know, let's go to this shocking news story that's appeared on whatever medium because it's fake. Yeah, that's right. Or, you know, you wouldn't believe what Trump just said. Yeah. You know. How do you do that? Any of your startups doing that for us? No, I wish that were the case. Uh, I think this is a really hard one. You know, I think, you know, if, if you take the view that part of the problem with, with fake news and the way it spreads is that People read headlines. They don't read stories, right? If you take that as a starting point uh, to understand the problem, you also start to realize that people people form emotional responses to what they see on Facebook. They don't form intellectual ones, right? And this is this is a core problem. This is an algorithm issue. This is a core business of Facebook. Um, they need to figure out how best to deal with this. Right. If if all they're doing is giving you stuff that that other people have found interesting and engaged with, um, that's going to push you further down down the line. I mean, you know, any one of us can go on on any of these social platforms and find ideas that that validate the suspicions and the biases that we all have as humans. Can can I ask you? There's been a lot of speculation about whether um, Google and Facebook should make a greater contribution to journalism, given they benefit from all the content they're aggregating and stealing off other sites, yeah. and yet they don't really contribute much to the creation of that stuff. Hmm. Should they be levied so that a content fund can be created so that other media outlets whose business models have collapsed oh, that's a tough one. can create some journalism? Look, I think. I think the that that horse has left the barn. You know, I think the most important thing to to acknowledge here and to kind of embrace is the fact that um, consumers have moved away from, you know, watching TV. They've moved away from buying newspapers for a reason, because there are other things to do on their phone. There are other, you know, more compelling ways to get information. And the newspaper and the TV, you know, I mean, these things don't 
don't hold much relevance anymore. And this is where, you know, we go back to the whole issue of relevance. So if you... But these sites are effectively stealing content being produced and paid for by other sources. I wouldn't say they're stealing. I think, you know, you know, Google exists because it needs it needs to explain what's going on in the world, or at least, you know, help help you discover the world that's out there in a digital form. Facebook tells you what, what your friends and family are, are doing, right? And all of these, you know, we all have, have our parts to play in this, right? We're, we're all using Facebook, um, and yet at the same time, you know, we, we expect them to pay for, for some of this stuff, and I think that's kind of that's odd. So, Alan, you said at the outset that you think that Asia is its own unique market and we keep looking to America, but we're different to America. Yeah. Can you tell me a little more about why you think that? Well, I think what's really interesting about the way newsrooms and media organizations are set up in, in Asia is, is the fact that most of these, the big ones, are either government-owned or owned by a political party or they're owned by big conglomerates, right? So by virtue of that, um, they exist for a very different reason. It's not a commercial reason in, in, in most of these cases. So I think that when you look at what's going on in, in the Asia Pacific, especially in Southeast Asia, the economics of this, the economics of, of the implosion that we've seen in the U.S. hasn't really hit this region just because these newsrooms exist, you know, on a very different model. Um, they exist because they're there to make a political party look good, to communicate a government policy or, you know, to uh, to make a, a politician look better. <laughs> and in the case of Australia, do you think uh, having two major media companies in Fairfax and News Corp, that concentrated ownership actually protects it from having other startups come into the space? Yeah, a number of people have, have suggested that as well. And, you know, it's not, it's, it's, it's easy to see why that's, that's a case. So if you were a startup and you came in and you were building your, your business on an advertising model, you would not find a way through any of the doors for, for client money just because this market is largely dominated by ad agencies and ad agencies serve big numbers. Um, you know, they're looking for scale. They're looking for, for reach. And you're not going to be able to do that. And, you know, the best people who are best placed to maximize and optimize for that would be the big, you know, the big two. It's just yet another example of how concentrated our media is and the ill effects of it. And, and, and my, my hunch is that Australians don't really know what we're missing out on. We don't really know what a pluralist media looks like because it has been so concentrated for so long. Yeah. And, and you know, that's why we're, we're hoping to uncover more media startups in this space. I think, you know, this country given, I think it's a big size. I mean, I come from Singapore, right? So, so this is big to me. And I think the opportunities are here. And I think that, you know, when you have an urbanized population and a rural population, there are ways to, to tell stories for very specific communities that, that can absolutely be done. Andrew asked you a question before about whether we're getting too much information. And while it's true that we can access the New York Times or look at the Guardian yeah. or we can go to Russian today. Are there any startups that are really trying to get into the local space that you've been seeing? Yeah, we, we've seen some of this. I mean, you know, it, you know, the fact is it's really easy to run a small digital newsroom at a local level. You know, you don't need that much to get things going. If you don't have to run a printing press delivery truck network or, you know, or, or a broadcast facility, you know, you can make a lot of the stuff happen. And also, you know, going back to, to using the ad tech that's, that's currently available, you can easily target based on locale. So, Alan, I'm a startup. I've just listened to this podcast. How can I get access to some of that million dollars that you've got? 
Oh, come come on to our website, thesplicenewsroom.com. Um, drop us an email. You know, I'll get back to you on that one. And when are we going to hear about these Australian startups? Very disappointed you haven't been able to tell us about them in this interview. I know. I you know we're 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 trying to restructure this in our minds because I think what's really fascinating about Australia is that. There's a lot of talent out here. There's a lot of money on the advertising side of it, at least. Uh, and yet, you know, the one thing that that kept coming up was was the fact that everyone was saying to to me, "Hey, we're we're really small. This is a really small market." And I think, really, you know, it it doesn't it doesn't make sense to me. So I I'm I'm you know this is why I'm I'm kind of holding back a bit uh, on jumping to conclusions here um, because there have been a number of things that that have just baffled me and I just needed to kind of, you know, dig in some more. We look forward to hearing how the final report comes down. Thank you for joining us on Media Files. Thank you. Thanks very much, Alan. And that was Alan Soon, the co-founder and CEO of Splice Newsroom, speaking with me, Andrew Dodd and Andrea Carson. Media Files is produced in association with The Conversation. You can subscribe on iTunes or Pocket Casts. Production is by Andy Hazel and Gavin Neighbour. I'm Andrea Carson. Thanks for listening.